Welcome to the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, the premier online startup pitch contest where top climate tech and impact founders pitch VCs looking to fund world positive companies. If you're a founder looking for funding or a climate or impact investor interested in joining and investing alongside forward VCs, syndicate, and companies that move the world forward, please visit thestartuptank.com for more details and to apply. But now it's time to enter the tank. Hey there, folks. Welcome to the Startup Tank, the Climate Investor Pitch Show. If this is your first time, we're pretty much what it sounds like. We bring on the world's top climate tech startups, so pre-seed to pre-series A, and do this every two weeks. We bring on a panel of climate VCs. Today, I'm joined with uh, by EDP Ventures. I'm sure a lot of you know EDP, very large corporate and quite a quite a sizable portfolio when it comes to both investments and on the direct business side. So very excited to be joined by, I always butcher the names. I think it's Yao, Yao Philippe from EDP Ventures. Did I get it close to right, Yao? That's that's quite similar. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks. And I'll, uh, I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself in a sec. But while everyone's still kind of getting into the system, um, so we do this every two weeks. You want to apply the startuptank.com for more details. You can come on and pitch our panel of uh, of dragons or sharks, so to speak, to try to get your climate startup funded. And all of this is brought to you by Forward VC. So I run Forward VC and our partner in crime, Climate Accelerator. We invest in one to two incredible climate companies a month and then help them. We, uh, we cheat and use our network, our connections, and our 170 plus mentors Folks high up at places like Porsche, Honda, Luthansa, HSBC, JetBlue, Johnson Matthey, EDP, and others. And we help you land some clients so that you can turn your business and turn your turn your kind of climate product into something that's more than just TRL 456, but really get into market, get those use cases proven out, and scale into corporates. More details at forward.vc, the number four ward.vc. We invest in companies that move the world forward. And if that's you, consider applying for one of our upcoming sessions. And check out our Climate VC database. You can find it on our site as well. We've got 900 plus climate funds, incubators, accelerators, and ZVCs. You can search by um, stage, sector, geography, and check size to find your ideal investor and raise your round. And now let's uh, let's move into the startup tank. So the format, we have five incredible companies here. They'll each get five minutes to pitch. We'll give a, a bit of follow-up afterwards, so about 10 minutes of Q&A per company. And then at the end of the night, uh, Yao and I will see if we can choose a startup of the night. We'll vote, We uh, and they win all of the glory in the world. And ideally, for the climate investors listening in, be sure to reach out to the interesting ones, because there are some pretty cool pretty cool companies here. Before before we kick things off, Yao, would you want to share a little bit more about yourself and about uh, EDP? Sure. Uh... Thank you, thank you, Matt. Uh, so I'm I'm an associate uh, at uh, TDP Ventures, as, uh, as Matt mentioned. So uh, we're we're a, a large corporate, a large utility player, uh, over nine million customers around the world, present in 29 countries, around 25 gigawatts of installed capacity, uh, most of which from from renewables. Um, EDP Ventures, obviously, as the name suggests, we're the VC arm of the group. Uh, we invest worldwide, early stage, so all the way from C to Series Bs. Um, obviously mostly focused on the energy value chain, climate tech, decarbonization, and related fields. Uh, as a CVC, of course, we are a strategic investor, so, so we like to partner with our portfolio companies whenever possible, uh, of course, and, and we don't only, only look at the financial aspect of investment. Um, uh, 
We have around uh, around 39 portfolio companies uh, right now. Our average ticket size is, uh, are, are anywhere from one to 10 million euro. And we, we always take minority stakes and try to sort of uh, help our portfolio companies when, whenever we can uh, and working with the best partners around the world. Yeah, that's a bit about us and VP Ventures. Thanks and thanks for thanks for tuning in. Thanks for helping to uh, to judge the companies. And if you're if you're watching this on YouTube or podcast or LinkedIn Live or whatever it is, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss a thing. And now that's enough. Uh, that's enough of us and kind of around the horn, so to speak. Uh, it's time to hand things over to the companies because that's what you're really here for, and they're here to try to raise some money and get some interest. So, Virginia, you want to take things away with. Uh, with Lou Watt and share share the, the future of uh, toilets everywhere. Absolutely. Um, I hope that everybody can see my screen. Looking good. Tell Great. me when you're ready and I will kick off your five minutes. And I'll give okay. you a one minute. I'll give you a one minute warning as well. Sound good? Oh, that's helpful. Thank you so much. Awesome. Take it okay, away. Okay, let's go. So yeah, I'm Virginia Gardner, and I'm the founder and CEO of Luat, and we are absolutely looking to move the world forward in terms of improving sanitation around the world um, with revolutionary toilet systems. So. Poor sanitation is a global killer. Um, it is a problem which leads to many knock-on negative problems. Um, Two-thirds of the world and most of Sub-Saharan Africa is without access to sewer toilets. The impacts on economies, human health, and also greenhouse gas emissions are significant. And so this is a problem that urgently needs solutions, and um, that's why we're here. So at Luat, we believe that to change sanitation, you need to begin with a great toilet experience and connect that with circular economy solutions that um, mean that you can treat, treat waste sustainably and also protect water resources. So we're doing all of that, but it begins with a great toilet experience, which is delivered by our unique technology. We've developed a toilet which contains waste in a very small amount of polymer film using a patented sealing mechanism. And this mechanism can be built into different types of toilets. We have a home model, which is operated manually, and um, and a portable model which is operated electronically and includes smart data collection and so what the toilet gives you is an odorless waterless experience um, a clean bowl for every visit it's like a flush toilet but without the water and then linked to the toilet we have a system which means that you can have circular systems for generating value from waste and so with luat it's not just about a toilet it is about also the system components that make all of that possible. So we have refills, which are the consumable, which goes through the system. They comprise about 1% of the waste stream. Um, we have containment. Um, so the toilets are regularly serviced about once weekly in a home setting and more frequently, like once daily in an event type of setting. We have then software that delivers efficiency and tracks utilization of the toilets. And then resource extraction equipment, which means that you can extract everything that goes into the toilet and put it back into circular economy systems like anaerobic digestion, which makes human waste into fuel and fertilizer. So customers love using our toilets. Um, we've delivered more than 3,000 visits, sorry, more than 3 million visits uh, to toilets since we started services in 2016. And um, the user experience is what people love about Luat. Our team has unique experience in sanitation. So across every vertical in the business, we've got years of toileting experience, um, including the finance director, commercial and engineering. And so we're bringing a really unique skill set to this problem. 
we're tracking impact along the way. So um, through software and also a system that we've developed in terms of looking at the key performance indicators for impact, we look at waste safely managed, greenhouse gas reductions and beneficiaries, but sanitation actually impacts all of the sustainable development goals. So it's a really great thing to focus on if what you're interested in is impact. There's a huge global market for this. So um, it's estimated 190 billion plus. And our way in is with portables and urban non-sewered sanitation where there's the greatest opportunity for impact and scale. So we're partnering with service providers and selling to service providers. So we're doing that in the UK where we have um, one of the largest event providers operating a Luat fleet. In Madagascar, where we have a business that's been scaling up um, over the last couple of years, now serving more than 5,000 people a day um, and delivering circular economy toilets, and has also just been awarded funding to scale up its operations significantly over the next couple of years. And in South Africa, we're now replicating the Madagascar model with one of the country's largest portable providers. One minute warning. So um, our plan for expansion is to jump on that and scale it up further by following the same partnership model, um, which is staged and also focused geographically where we see the greatest impact potential and growth potential. Um, re recurring revenue is an important part of the model, and we're also going to be increasing our margins as we increase scale. So you can see the yellow is recurring revenue in here. And we're raising funding to um, expand our commercial team um, continue building our IP portfolio, um, make the supply chain improvements that we need so that we can reach uh, globally. Um, we can see potential exit through a trade sale from 2026 onwards. Um, this is an EIS eligible investment. Um, so yeah, just to summarize, um, huge problem, patented, exciting solution, um, huge market opportunity, strong track record with 2.4 million revenues to date, um, and we're targeting 21 million turnover by 2027, and we're raising equity um, to get us there. So thank you very much. Awesome. And thank you for sharing. Let me bring uh, Yao back in so we can kind of hop onto our panel questions. So quick question that I would have while I am uh, bringing everybody else in. How big, of a, how big of a carbon problem is every toilet? So what kind of impact are you guys having per toilet you install? That's a great question. And um, in the target markets where we're operating, the main incumbent solution is um, wet latrines. And so that means that we're, for every toilet we install, by replacing a latrine, it's estimated that you're, you're um, reducing carbon by approximately 126 kilograms per person per year. There's usually about six users per latrine. Um, so it's actually a pretty significant impact. Another way to look at it, which is more top down, is that they think about 3% of global um, methane and nitrous oxide emissions come from untreated human waste. Interesting. And then, of course, there's the, there's the actual quality of life issues. Uh, I'll hand things Major, over to, yeah. I'll hand <laughs> things to Yao first. Yeah, how, uh, health and then education and everything that goes into and that. And waterways, water pollution. Yeah, so I'm curious, you said this is a patent solution. What exactly are you patenting and, and how does that sort of uh, keep off other people from sort of trying to develop a, a similar solution? Um, so thank you, Yao. That's a great question. So what we have is a system solution. So it's we have a toilet and we've patented the functionality of the toilet. It's very robust and proven and um, and you know that's a really important feature when it comes to toilets, I think, is, is simplicity and robustness. And so that element um, is what we've patented in the toilet itself. 
And then when you look at the value chain, um, the polymer film refills, they need to fit into the toilet. And so we've patented how those are produced and how they fit. And then if you look at the, um, the waste processing as well, uh, we've developed unique solutions that separate um, human waste from the film so that the film can be treated in a range of circular economy systems and the human waste can be treated in biological systems. Okay, and you, uh, I guess my next question is sort of uh, on the on the back of what you just said in terms of of of, uh, of reutilizing or or at least recycling the film is how how are you go about to service the toilets? You mentioned that these need to be serviced regularly. Who, who does this? Uh, is it a complex uh, process? Thank you. That's another very good question that I didn't have time to cover in the pitch. Um, so. The way the toilet works is it pulls the film down through the ceiling unit into a container beneath. And so in order to service the toilet, you swap out the refill and you swap out the container. And so it's a very quick and hygienic process. You tie a knot and flush the remaining bit of refill through and swap out the container. It's like a job that you don't even need gloves on to do. Um, and it's not smelly and there's no contact with human waste. Um, and so, yeah, then you take the containers, you'll have a service model, hopefully operated by electric vehicles. Um, which can take all of that waste to the resource extractor machine where it is then processed for um, waste to value purposes. Okay, and how easy, I'm assuming you do this sort of through local partnerships. How, is it, how easy is it to establish these local partnerships? Yeah, so it's one of the things that we've really focused on is having a system that, which can be adopted by utilities in a wide range of environments. So for example, we've run pilots with utilities in the Philippines, now we have um, waste processing equipment in operation in South Africa, which is operated at a utility site. And we've also operated them at utility sites and portable provider sites here in the UK. Um, and so if you think about where we sit as a business, like we're entering the market, which has been dominated by two types of technology. Um, in, in countries like the UK, it's, it's chemical portable toilets and vacuum flush toilets where there's a different type of infrastructure, but there's still that regular servicing. And in emerging markets, it's generally latrines and septic tanks, which are also serviced regularly. And so those are the those types of entities which are already established and servicing a toilet, but might want to add new technology to their portfolio or the types of customers that we're selling to. Okay, interesting. Um, more on the business model side. So um, how, firstly, where or who is manufacturing these? Uh, is it you or are you sort of servicing this, this out? Um, and and how, how exactly are you making money out of it? So um, manufacturing is something that we don't do in-house. Um, we're mm -hmm. starting with contract manufacture. We started that in early 2022 across all of our product range. Um, and as we move forward into the future, we can look at even more sort of licensing types of models as we scale up. Um, so yes, we do generate revenue from the sales of toilets uh, through outsourced manufacture. And then um, beyond that, there's refills as well, which we can license the production of into markets where we enter. Um, and then we have developed software that I mentioned, which is part of operating the toilets in the system, which we see mainly is an opportunity to track impact. Um, a lot of the customers that we're seeking where there's the largest opportunity for impact are in cities that need good solutions for non-sewage sanitation. And those service providers will be reporting on metrics around um, beneficiaries, waste safely managed and things like that to funders and, and governments. And so we want to be able to help them do that. Okay. Um, 
Okay, that's clear. Um, one, uh, one, uh, one other question in terms of sort of your business model, uh, in terms of uh, scaling and expanding, what, what's next? Well, at the moment, we're very focused on South Africa, where we see a huge market potential. And we also have a number of other potential uh, markets in sub-Saharan Africa. We're trying not to go too wide geographically. Um, and we've developed a pretty good understanding of what the enabling factors are for when we enter a new country, um, which includes um, the need, um, the regulatory framework, and also the connection between service providers, the existence of the types of customers that we need and um, municipal services. And so um, that's where we're mainly focused. And we're also looking to scale up sales of the Zen toilets, which currently are in operation in the UK for events and also uh, glamping, um, which really highlights the, the quality of the experience that our, Senate, our service delivers. It's all about having a great toilet. So do you have like an iPhone toilet and like an Android toilet? Like how, I don't see how you're selling. <laughs> you don't need a phone to use the toilet. <laughs> no, but in terms of, in terms of having the fancy one, that's actually just kind of highly priced in luxury versus the low price one that services no, the world. No, the important thing to understand is that the core technology in both toilets is exactly the same. So it's the same experience in terms of that waterless flush. It's actually the same hardware presently um, that sits inside. It's just how it's actuated. So in the Zen toilet, it's actuated by push button and in the home toilet, it's actuated by hand so that it doesn't have an actual power requirement to operate the equipment. Um, the Zen toilet has smart features, so it collects data and um, sends it to the cloud while the home toilet uses a software system which is more adapted to services and cities, um, which we've also developed, but it is, it's where the operators who are servicing the toilets use smartphones and the toilets are tagged and there's tracking which supports basically CRM service delivery operation um, optimization and impact tracking. Are people using that much kind of detailed processing in the places where these are being used? I feel like those are almost access features. Uh, no, like in Madagascar, where we have an operation now that's servicing more than 5,000 people a day, um, we use the software. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing without the software in terms of tracking because it manages customer payments as well. Uh, people pay a monthly fee to have the toilet at home, so it supports that. It um, supports disaggregated data on each home that we're servicing, so we understand um, who we're benefiting and how many children, how many women, et cetera. Um, and it also um, supports logistics in terms of uh, maximizing the number of collections per collector per day. So all that stuff is, is really important for delivering um, services at scale with our system. Sorry, just uh, maybe a strange question. You, you just mentioned that uh, people uh, pay this fee to, to, to have the, the toilet at home. What happens when you stop paying this fee? So that's part of, um, that has to be part of the operating service model. So if people don't pay, there's a grace period and then you can, the toilet is owned by the servicing company. It can be removed. Okay. Effectively, they're, they're hiring it, you could say. I mean, you probably don't even have to remove it. You probably just have to stop servicing it. I don't think anyone's going to want that in their house after a while. One of the features about our operation has been that um, we have uh, very low customer churn rates because people love having the toilets. And I think that's because of the user experience. What's the biggest challenge you've had, though? You know, because what we're doing is an ecosystem business, which is really a disruptive innovation, um, you know, and I, I spend a lot of time kind of reflecting on how far we've come and also how long it's taken us to get where we are now, which is at a very exciting point. Um, I guess it's taken us time to 
um, to get to the point where we have um, resolved solutions across the value chain that I showed earlier and understand how to enter the target market, which is the largest and the most challenging, which is urban sanitation. Um, sorry, Matt, go ahead. No, no, you're good. Um, how are you sort of marketing or actually communicating uh, your solution out there? You mean in terms of just generally? Yes. Yeah, so for, for, uh, before this pitch, this, this is essentially the first time I'm hearing about this. So how would I sort of go about having one of your toilets at my house if I were to live in South Africa? You should visit our website, which is luwat.com. Um, but why do, how do people know to go there? So like yes, I have, so I have a time point. machine in my basement. Anyone, anyone, you just have to come over to my house and find it. <laughs> well, um, in South Africa, we're marketing it through, um, it's branded under a, under a service name that we've developed in partnership with the partners there. And the marketing there is door is, it starts out with a combination of door to door socials social media, um, customer referrals is a big one. So we get a lot of referrals from somebody has a toilet, their neighbor likes it, they get one. Um, really? And then there's also community motive, community activation events. Yeah, that's how we've been doing it in Madagascar, South Africa. In the UK, you can go to our website and, and, and um, get information about buying toilets. It just seems like a really hard thing to have word of mouth on because... I don't feel like I would ever be telling my friends or family about our toilet, regardless of how awesome it was. I don't, I find that people often, often talk about toilets, but maybe I could definitely see it if you put it in like public places. So like oh, yeah. commun community centers, et cetera, that would be phenomenal. You could probably just donate one to community centers. If well, you we, thought do, we do do that. So that in Madagascar, they have a portion of their fleet operating in portables so they had toilets at the Africa Cup of Nations. They have toilets servicing construction sites. They have toilets servicing weddings and certain kinds of events. And that way they do get a lot of footfall. And um, there's also, that helps a lot to spread word of mouth for the home services as well, because somebody will use the toilet at an event and say, I liked that. And then they find out about the home service. Okay, and then last question, I guess on my side. No, he's got to, you got to end it with a pun if you're doing this. So why should VCs give a shit? Why is this interesting? Because we have the opportunity to reverse the race to the bottom by bringing a great solution to toilets in markets where the existing solutions just haven't been providing a good enough experience to deliver decent margins and um, turn around the sanitation business. Um, sorry, one, one, one last or... Yeah, one last question from my side, potentially interesting as well for, for others in, uh, uh, present. Um, you mentioned you were raising. How much are you raising? Uh, how much? How long is that going to take you? Uh, and just sort of sort of general idea on fundraising at the moment. Thank you for asking that because we're opening a crowdfunder next week on Cedars, um, and um, the target is going to be probably somewhere in the one to one and a half million range to begin with. Um, we're going to be working on closing that equity through about six weeks plus. Um, and so we're raising money now and um, we're looking to do the raise that's gonna get us to the point of the next pivot in terms of growth and or the break-even point. That's how we put it out in our financial plan. Um, in tandem with that, we're growing sales a lot this year. 
I guess that that leads to one quick follow-up question is why do a why do a crowdfunding campaign? Traditional investors don't like that. It's going to make it much harder to raise with VCs because if anyone can invest, it doesn't feel exclusive. I've heard that before. Um, and I, you know, actually I was speaking to somebody about a week ago from the US who said that. Um, we did do a crowdfunding and campaign in 2020 with Cedars. So this is doing the same thing that we've done again. Um, so there's that. <laughs> um, but also I think um, what's really important for the business, hopefully for all investors is what we do uh, in terms of growth with the cash that we can raise. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to think that um, we're shutting doors. Um, if we could raise all of the money that we need to, um, you know, I, I think the important thing for us is to, is to keep moving and, and grow the business. Awesome. Then yeah, thanks for sharing. Any last questions, Yao? No, that's it. Thank you. Super interesting. Thank you for, for, for sharing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Virginia. It's uh it's incredibly interesting and clearly clearly important. Thanks now, a lot. I'd love to I'd love to transition things over to well, we were in waste management, so why not keep it in waste management with uh with uh Kavya and Acra app? You wanna you wanna take things away, Kavya, and tell people a little bit more about what you guys are doing to uh to solve waste. Uh, sure, sure, Matt. Thanks for the introduction. I'll just, uh, uh, am I visible? No, your video's not on. Are we yet. good? Uh, am I visible yet? There you go. You're good and you should be able to turn on your screen share. Great. Sure. sure. I'll do that. And while she's getting that all set up again, guys, forward.vc, we've got Climate VC and Climate Founder Slack communities, about 2,200 folks, just at forward.vc. You can find lots of free resources and such. Looks like you are good are to go. Good? Yeah, ready to take it away? Sure. sure. Awesome. Let's hear it. So hello, everyone. Uh, I'm from uh, Akri App. I'm the uh, Chief Operating Officer of Akri. So we have an application, a single go-to application that is an end-to-end -end solution for waste management, wherein uh, we are incentivizing the customers uh, by promoting a responsible behavior towards waste management, wherein we have segregation at the point of disposal. So when we analyze various waste management problems, wherein we end up with a lot of landfills, open dumps, and open incinerations, we identified that the major problem, even with one of the cleaner cities, uh, Vienna, is that unsegregated waste and the residual waste gets incinerated. So to promote segregation at the point of disposal, we have created an application wherein customers uh, from different geographies can schedule a pickup for different categories of items, including domestic biomedical waste, food waste, plastic waste, different categories of plastic glass uh, to schedule a pickup wherein our riders go to their locations and collect the different categories of material, uh, including uh, the various 30 materials that I have mentioned and the four different categories of biomedical waste uh, from the customer locations. And we take it to the respective vendors in the final part of the supply chain. This way we have disrupted the supply chain by removing complex intermediaries in the scrap management and uh, waste management networks so that we transfer the benefits from the vendor directly to the end customer. 
So that way customers are motivated through the incentives. Uh, for example, if we collect one kg of newspaper, we give them uh, 21 rupees as against a normal scrap seller who gives them five to 10 rupees. So this way for all the materials, we have built a supply chain where every category of item that we collect gets transferred directly to the final vendor who has to manage the pro product scientifically. So uh, these are some of our unique features, how we have solved the waste management problem in a very unorganized market like India. We have started with uh, the state Kerala, wherein we have expanded operations throughout Cochin uh, Corporation, Calicut Corporation, and we are in talks with uh, other cities within Kerala and uh, around uh, Kerala with Bangalore, Chennai, some of the Southern states as well for the domestic biomedical waste management. So uh, I would like to talk about the scale, how rapidly we have scaled in uh, say maybe eight months time from uh, the time that we have started. So we have started with 170 kgs a month of domestic biomedical waste, wherein uh, 15 days back, we were doing five tons a month. And with the work order that has come in from the Putin Corporation, to pick domestic biomedical waste from the complete corporation, we have started picking two tons a day of domestic biomedical waste. And for every kg of uh, domestic biomedical waste that we collect in the yellow category, we charge the customer 45 rupees plus GST. And uh, in the subsequent stages, we are planning a campaign wherein we have uh, give 10 get 10, wherein they can give away 10 kg of adult diapers, used adult diapers, and they can get uh, 10 adult diapers free of cost. We are planning for a private label launch as well. So um, this is one of the uh, first ever on-demand provider to collect domestic and commercial biomedical waste. So that is our niche. In addition to our niche, we are also targeting all other categories of waste and building a circular economy model for it. One minute warning. Yes, Matt. Uh, yeah, got it, got it. So these are the features. It is an all-in-one app. We schedule uh, pickups and customers can directly reach out to us. And uh, the target audience, we do uh, high-risk buildings, B2C customers more directly to the business uh, for the government as well. And uh, this is the opportunity uh, in terms of what is open for us. It is a $3.2 billion market overall. And uh, these are the different features. We started with one municipality. And right now, we have expanded to four different states within India. And we have Vienna Airport City, as well as um, the uh, pilot with MA48, which is one of the waste collection agencies in Vienna. So but one important competitive advantage that we have is no other provider collects uh, the domestic biomedical waste, which is operationally intensive. And we are doing that in India with an application. So the business time model is, is that... Uh, yeah. time, time is up. How do you guys make money quick while well, I'm pulling uh, everybody back in? How do you guys make money? How do you get paid? So, yeah. Uh, in terms of the money, we have a model wherein uh, whenever we are giving away the application, the service provider pays us. And in addition to that, whatever materials we collect from the customers, we take it to the vendors and they pay us for the goods that we collect. 
And can you clarify what you were talking about with the diapers? I got a little confused there. So uh, generally we collect domestic biomedical waste. So when I say domestic biomedical waste, it includes four categories, wherein we collect the red category, blue category, white, and uh, yellow category. The yellow category includes uh, any kind of waste that can be incinerated, which includes the napkins, the kids diapers, the adult diapers that we collect from different households. So uh, whatever we collect from them uh, is quite expensive for an adult, as in very old people, uh, wherein they spend over uh, 800 to 1200 rupees for purchasing these adult diapers, 10 numbers. So what we have planned is an initiative wherein whenever we are collecting 10 kgs of waste from them, we give them 10 diapers free of cost. So it is almost like uh, so that we can private label it as a product, separate D2C product and take it to the market so that it is more of a community initiative that we are planning with the diapers. Are you, but how, how are you paying for those diapers? Are you then manufacturing and charging them? Or are they just getting them free? So we are sourcing it, sourcing it uh, through some of the manufacturing partners, wherein the actual cost of these diapers come to be around four to five rupees per unit. So 10 uh, diapers, if I say it would cost around 40 to 50 rupees, uh, whereas the actual diapers which are available in the market, it's costing them around 800 to 1200 rupees. That is almost 20x of the actual cost. So we take it to them uh, initially through the biomedical collection subscription plan. So customers generally subscribe to our plan on a monthly basis or a pickup basis, wherein uh, they can get uh, maybe 10 pickups free of cost. And for every kg of waste that they generate, uh, they pay us an amount for biomedical. So that is how we make money. Say for one kg of waste that we collect, we collect 50 rupees plus GST. And in turn for the waste that we collect, we give them the diapers free of cost. Okay, so spend $10 and get 5% back type of thing. Okay. Correct. And we are operating in profits with uh, 37 to 42% each margins. What are you guys doing revenue-wise right now? So revenue-wise, we are bootstrap model as of now, uh, wherein we have the application uh, that is uh, taking care of the expenses. And uh, whatever goods that we collect through the scheduled pickups, we take it to the respective vendors. Like say, for example, the plastic that we collect goes to the unit wherein they are converted into granules and they are converted into filaments for additive manufacturing and 3D printing and different baying units wherein this plastic that we collect gets utilized as textiles or for making roofs. So those vendors pay us in cash. This cash we transfer to the customer for scheduling the subsequent pickups so that they are monetized and motivated. It sounds to very complicated. For the subsequent pickups. I guess, I guess sort of, I also have the same question. So how much actually are you uh, making in terms of revenue currently? So in terms of revenue, uh, we are making uh, 12 to 15 lakhs per month from one unit. So we have two units wherein we are making uh, 2x of 12 to 15 lakhs per unit. And in addition to that, uh, after all the marketing expenses and the operating expenses, we have a profit of uh, 3.7 to 4 lakhs. Okay. Which is roughly what in dollars? 
Uh, so it is uh, in terms of the percentage, if I talk about, we are operating in profits with a profit of uh, 37 to 42%. So uh, primarily uh, when I say the funding requirement that we have right now is for expansion to other states so that we can take this as a model to other states as well and promote uh, biomedical collection in subsequent states as well. How do you plan to promote your collection? What's your what's your process? And is there any type of defensibility or network effects in what you're building? So uh, we directly talk to the high-raise buildings, apartment federations, and uh, resident welfare associations, and corporate buildings, wherein they partner with us and schedule pickups with us uh, when we are in the pilot stage. And once we are set in a particular city, we go to the B2C market as well, where an individual customers within the zone can schedule pickups and start earning with us, with all the materials that they are giving away to us. And all the materials that we collect from them, we take it to the respective vendors. Say, for example, if we collect one kg of plastic from the customer, we pay them in cash for the material that we collect from them, and we take it to the respective vendors. Say, for example, if we are collecting PEG, if PEG is fetching us maximum revenue from a, a filament maker who makes filaments for 3D printing or additive manufacturing, we take it to them. If we are collecting a single-use plastic, we take it to the respective vendor who gives us the maximum amount. That way, for every category of item, metals, plastic, everything that we collect from the customers, we take it to the final vendor in the supply chain so that the end of life of every product is scientifically managed and effectively brought in the cycle of reduce, reuse, and recycle. So that is how we uh, you know, effectively manage waste. We are in requirement for funds to expand into other states. I have a, I have a question. So you just you mentioned sure. uh, during your pitch that your, one of your main competitive advantages was that you treat organic and biomedical waste. Um, how difficult really would it be for a competitor to sort of treat this waste as well? Uh, I guess so there's no there's no real IP protecting this sort of business model, is there? So we actually have an IP for our application, uh, the source code okay. of our application. And also we are the only associate partners in India with KEIL. So Kerala Enviro Infrastructure Limited, that is uh, that is one of the two uh, public infrastructures that is uh, associated with treating biomedical waste. So there is another IMA goes eco-friendly, which deals with uh, commercial and B2B biomedical waste. Say for example, hospitals, labs, small labs, healthcare uh, institutes, but not uh, household level biomedical waste management. So what we are doing is household level uh, biomedical management, which is quite operationally intensive for any player to enter into the market. Since we already have a traction of 50,000 plus customers, which we have achieved uh, in one and a half years time, uh, we have a good scaling option in terms of visibility, in terms of the vendor network, and in terms of the association, with the public infrastructure, which is, uh, you know, scientifically established to treat biomedical waste. So their certification procedures are quite tedious and they have not associated with any other partner. So even if someone is going to collect biomedical waste as a logistics partner, uh, that requires a lot of licensing and certifications, which we have. So not other partners or no competitor can enter into this very easily. 
in terms of biomedical unless okay. they have an association or an operating agreement with AEIA. Okay, and, and how, how is waste currently treated? Uh, because uh, my question here is based, based on the sense that it's very difficult to change behavior. And I understand that you're being re- uh, sort of rewarded for this change, but uh, it still takes a lot to sort of make someone uh, change their usual behaviors, even when being rewarded for it. So the, the upside needs to be quite substantial for, for a change in behavior. Especially keeping diapers at home so, somewhere because exactly. they'll start to smell. So that is the reason why we uh, see there is a requirement wherein we have to collect these waste within 24 hours of it being generated. And within 24 hours of this waste getting collected, we have to take it to the facility for scientifically treating it. So there is a maximum of 48 hour window. So as soon as the customer schedules a pickup, we have an urgent facility in the application and also an immediate one day pickup. So as soon as it is scheduled, our fleet goes and picks it up and takes it to KEI. So that is how we take care of the pickup. So application is where we have streamlined the operation towards a waste pickup so that we are also aware before we go there, what we are going to pick up, whether we are going to pick up paper cartons, whether we are going to pick up plastic or biomedical waste. And accordingly, we send the fleet and plan our trips to, uh, you know, the waste management uh, facility. And, okay. and are, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Um, and are, are these collectors, are, are they employed by you? Or are <laughs> same you... question, same <laughs> yeah, U- so... Uber model or employee model? So as of now, we have the riders who are employed on our payroll. They are full-time riders with us. But eventually, we have a plan wherein people with uh, their own vehicles can also join us as riders, wherein we'll give them the training for biomedical and other category waste collection. And eventually, uh, you know, we can work on a commission model with them. So as of now, all our full-time employees with us. What's your cost per pickup? Pardon? What's your cost per pickup? So cost uh, for pickup is less than one rupee per kg of item that we collect. Like pickup, logistics, taking it to the facility is less than one rupee. Almost uh, like less than 50 paise, if I must say, less than half of a rupee per how do you, kg. How do you optimize the, the routes? Because I feel like while, while the traditional garbage system isn't good, it is kind of like one route that's being driven as opposed to like 17 routes being driven. Uh, actually, we have divided them into multiple zones and we have regular customers who schedule pickups on a daily basis. So according to uh, those pickups and also bulk waste generators have a specific date or uh, thrice a week. So they schedule their pickups on those days and the zones uh, are taken care of by respective riders. So based on the pickups that are scheduled for every zone, um, these riders are, uh, you know, they have their own partner application for planning their trips. So as soon as the, uh, you know, pickup is scheduled and they get a notification, they reach the location and they take the pickups. There seem to be a lot of moving parts. If this fails, why will so it be? We have, so we have an end-to-end waste management. Uh, eventually, when we are scaling into other locations, 
uh, we have an associate partner model wherein we can give the app only uh, for them to use and you know they can use their existing warehouse and fleet for pickup and optimize the pickups through our application so that is one of the models that we are planning for uh, scaling across okay. different locations but eventually if you scale to such a size wouldn't this just be easier for the regular sort of waste collection companies or i'm not sure if this is public or if this is private uh in, in this case but uh, just the, the company that sort of takes care of the regular waste uh treatment can they not sort of replicate your 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 uh, your partnerships and then just make 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 money the same way that you do so again as i was saying segregation at the point of disposal is our mode so since we have a model uh, which is ip protected and also uh, we have our fleet and warehouse and also we have licensing from pollution control board uh, the government license for biomedical waste pickup which is not given to any other partners so even if uh, the other agents who are the associate partners pick up uh, biomedical as a logistics option they still have to give it to us to take it to kei so we still have the competitive advantage for biomedical and other categories how long did it take you to get that though i feel like the waste management companies would be pretty big and you could probably just kind of lean on someone and say can you speed up our stamp here because it doesn't make sense and we're kind of the player we can make this work better i, I did not get your question how long did it take you to get said approval a and b that's only approval in the state of kerala right so in every every other state it's going to be different so uh, we have uh, our uh, business partners and also the government authorities uh, from kerala supporting us to uh, take our services to different states uh, be it the karnataka or the tamil nadu then they are uh, talking from ministry to ministry to help us uh, launch our services in other states as well because we have successfully uh, you know uh, launched the pilot and we have uh, validated the proof of concept in one of the largest corporations within kerala the cochin corporation uh, so uh, we have been receiving many awards recently uh, which includes the kairali inotech award as well recently so that is one of the major awards of the state for uh, application uh, that is pioneering application in innovation for a uh, good cause as in technology for good so that is the reason why they are promoting us to other states as well so that uh, waste management happens seamlessly at the point of disposal so that we can eventually reduce the amount of unsegregated waste that goes to landfill sites so that is our major idea to reduce unsegregated waste that goes to landfill sites so as i am saying this is a, a very large problem for any single player to operate so even if we have competitors we are uh, welcome for them to come and cooperate with us because uh, the cities that i am talking about is generating 4000 tons per day of waste and there is still a lot of room for everyone to operate together and even if required we can explore partnerships uh, among those people who are willing to enter into this field and give our application on a subscription model wherein uh, they can use their fleet and services wherein it can be branded and branded or co-branded with acri
because every city that I'm talking about is generating over 4,000 tons per day of waste. Um, you mentioned uh, for expansion, you, you'll, need, uh, you'll need money. What's, what's, what's the fundraising uh, funding sort of? Right. Yeah. So the funding requirement that we have as of now is uh, 3CR for uh, expansion uh, in the subsequent geographies. So for three cities, one for every city, we need one CR. So we are planning for Bangalore and Ernakulam zone two. And uh, we also have a plan to uh, have a pilot with Vienna airport city, wherein uh, we are exploring an option to set up the same facility within the airport city premises of Vienna. So three CR is our ask. So you got you got fifty thousand households. How it's I mean it's very impressive. You've done a very good job. How did you grow so quickly and get such traction and trash? So when I say fifty thousand plus customers, so uh, they are primarily through uh, various uh, media coverages from the governments and as and when uh, we launch our services in a particular city. Government covers it, uh, covers it in the media for us. And we have uh, our own marketing team who regularly conducts campaigns and beach cleanup drives, e-waste collection drives, so that we take the uh, you know application to school students, college students, wherein they take it to their households and schedule pickups. So that is uh, the community initiative that we have. Am I audible? Yes, you are. Okay, so that is how we collect, connect with the community. As of now, we have not spent much on the marketing, but uh, subsequently when we are expanding, there will definitely be marketing expenses as a requirement uh, because uh, as of now, we are in one state. So when we are going to other states to build the visibility factor, we will definitely have marketing expense. To conduct similar... Uh, beach cleanup drives, e-waste collection drives, uh, reduce plastic, reuse plastic drives that we have. Similar drives and campaigns will be conducted there as well to promote visibility. Last question, what does success look like for you? Pardon? What does success look like for you? Uh, are you saying that what is success for us or something like that? For you personally. So I would say um, that is when we have zero waste, zero emission, wherein we have a complete circular economy model that is built to effectively approach the end of life for every object. So when we uh, started collecting various categories of items, we identified that uh, the scientific treatment methods that we have for various categories of items are not sortable uh, for uh, the optimum end of life because they are not manufactured in a sustainable manner. So my uh, success would be when I have the complete circular economy model built, wherein every object uh, is uh, suitably manufactured in the first place so that we can have a sustainable end-of-life approach for them, for every category of item. So only if I build that complete circular economy model, I feel I have attained the success that I have started my venture with. Awesome. Then thanks. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for everything. Thank Any you. last questions, Joe, from EDP? No, that's that that's clear. Thank you. Thank you for sharing as well. 
thank you thank you so much then how about we uh how about we move things forward Airbuild, John, you wanna you wanna take things away and share what you guys are doing with uh with algae and new foam? Hey, yeah, thanks for introducing me. Uh John with Airbuild. I'm one of the founders. Uh it's four of us, but let me pull up my presentation and share it with you guys. Just let me know when you're ready. All right. I'm trying to remember how to share my bottom three dots, share screen. And if you guys haven't joined our Slack community, just forward.vc slash startup Slack. We've got about 1,200 uh, climate techies in there that you can interact with. It's pretty active. And now let's uh, let's see what Airbuild's doing. Ready? Take it away, John. All right. I'm trying to pull up the full view, but... Not a big deal. All right. Yeah, not a big deal. Anyways, I'm John with Airbuild. Um, right here it says integrating nature's solar panel into our built environment. Uh, what we call nature's solar panel is actually algae. And the reason for that is because what Airbuild does is grows algae as a raw material. So um, I guess there's a lot of companies now making plant-based materials and they're making foams and single-use plastics. We just think algae is the best solution because of the circular economy characteristics that go into it. So here's what we do, guys. We grow raw material just to produce foams, plastics, and other material at scale at a lower cost. Um, we do it a little bit different. So normal algae companies, they set up what's called a photobioreactor or a pond in the, in the middle of nowhere. And this is usually pretty costly to set up. So we were just like thinking, why don't we figure out how to put it in cities, on buildings where there's usually a high carbon dioxide you know, atmospheric content uh, in the ambient air and just take advantage of that. And the, the overall goal of this was to reduce the cost of growing algae. So basically we put plant-based solar panels on buildings. They're not generating electricity, but they're generating algae and we collect it as a raw material. The problem with like algae growth as it stands, which uh, equates to higher cost of algae to be used as a raw material, is the location. Um, the reason for that is because usually land is pretty pricey. And you, you put algae in the middle of nowhere, you're limiting yourself for scalability. Uh, the technology of algae growth also hasn't been innovated on in a long time. I guess we have photobioreactors and heterotrophic bioreactors. Those are a few ways of growing algae. But the, they've been around for a long time. Um, they are just our way of capturing algae and using it to capture sunlight and carbon dioxide. And the infrastructure of algae growth is pretty old. I think the, the business models that are currently at play for how algae growth companies operate are pretty antique. And we wanted to kind of flip everything on its head and you know have a, a interesting and radical solution. And just to preface this guys, we are earlier stage than the other companies that have spoken before us. Uh, they did an excellent job, by the way. So I got really inspired when I heard both of them talking. But um, mainly all of our, where we are right now is in research and development still. So this is the product that we can make from algae. And you've probably already been at a store and seen these type of materials. Like you've probably been at Starbucks and maybe seen like a, uh, a 
a fork that says plant-based on it. And pretty much anything can be made from algae. It's just a matter of the chemistry and mixture. The single use and the foams materials are the businesses that we plan to go in immediately. Um, advanced materials are, you know, you know, that takes more processing. That's a goal for us down the line. A lot of vehicle interiors, like I put this picture here, this specific BMW uses plant-based uh, vegan leathers and materials on the inside. So, but the single use and foams materials are the low hanging fruit for us to generate revenue from. So when I say we grow algae on buildings, we had to, uh, I guess, <laughs> basically make a panel and we had to design and engineer a panel that has a special growth method of algae inside of it. So this panel right warning. now, oh, okay. This panel right now can be installed on buildings. It can be installed on a parking structure, kind of like how this shows. Uh, the goal of it is to negate the land cost and have easy access to you know, ambient carbon dioxide near cars. So this is the actual method inside of the algae growth panel. It's called split mixotrophic growth. It's already been proven to increase algae growth and lipid content in the algae um, in South Korea research labs. The only thing is, is we need to prototype it in our method of growth and also that the scale that we want to do it. So scale changes everything with algae growth and with split mixotrophic growth. Um, we know that we can increase the amount of plastic produced, thus lowering the cost of producing plastics and foams, and then you know making more revenue. Um, so I'll skip right over to our team. It's me, Himanshu, Richard, and David. Uh, I'm the only non-technical guy on our team. These are all scientists and engineers that I work with, and we've developed the product together with a focus on engineering new ways rather than biological new ways. And time, um, time is up. What are you guys looking for? All right. We're looking for $100,000 as a pre-seed raise just to complete prototyping. And once we do prototyping, it'll be ready for us to commercialize. And we already have partnerships in place to speed that process. And uh, there would be a seed round with that as well. But right now, we need a prototype. And while I bring uh, Yao back, why are there so many algae startups that are trying to do great things? And still trying to do great things. There's so many that haven't gotten anywhere. Yeah. So the thing with algae startups is uh, algae is really attractive because of how much carbon dioxide it sequesters. It's basically like a tree on steroids. So it's the ultimate like circular economy solution um, for, I guess, capturing carbon dioxide and making a product out of it. But the middle of it is where everything goes wrong and where these things fail, which is because algae is typically pretty costly to turn into a revenue generating business. So you just have to lower the cost of growing it and basically change all the margins. So you need a lot of research to do that. And do you think you can pull it off? Why? Um, it's just, we have so many different innovations in place from when I said we turned everything on its head earlier, we really did from, from the growth method to the, to the processing, to the harvesting, to the business model, everything is completely different from other algae companies. Uh, the growth method itself is around 60 to 120% more efficient than other algae growth methods that exist right now. And it hasn't been brought to market and we have a provisional patent on it. Um, as far as the harvesting, it costs a lot, us a lot less to harvest. I'm pretty sure we detailed this in the email about how we wanted to turn like trash and recycle trucks into algae harvesting trucks. Um, 
because of that, you save a lot of money just by not having a harvester at every location. And then from the actual research that goes into the panel, the split mixotrophic method, not only does it allow more algae to be produced, but it just allows us to put it in a thin panel on the walls and sides of building and utilize all, a bunch of um, uh, like underutilized space. It turns our cities into like a living, breathing thing. And then on top of that, it's just, it looks beautiful architecturally. So it wouldn't be something um, that someone could look at and say, oh, that's ugly, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I have a couple, uh, two questions that, that sort of go hand in hand. Uh, the first one, yeah. uh, the first one is sort of how how are you finding? Just to understand if I if I got this correctly, so you're actually placing these panels on top of buildings. Uh, is that correct? Um, and yeah. How are you finding these locations? Are you sort of uh, uh, requesting it to build the uh, building owners? Um, what, how, yeah. how are you getting these? Yeah. So actually, I spoke with Matt about this too, but. Um, we have to prototype what we call the plant panel first because the plant panel is the modular piece, like a solar panel system that we put on these buildings. The low hanging fruit for us is to quickly get in the market is to build parking structures. You ever see those parking structures with solar on them? Yeah, so like that's kind of the idea. That's the low hanging fruit for us to get to first. But for later projects where we wanna go on buildings, We've actually struck up a partnership with a, a major architecture firm and are in talks with others so that they're pitching this type of building uh, ceiling or roof to uh, companies that they're working with at before the, the start of the construction of the building. And then there's also retrofit options for older buildings as well if they're structurally sound. But our goal right now is to get in at the beginning of building production. So. But that's why we were like, it's a major thing for us to partner with architecture firms just to get the idea out there, start getting it pitched. Right. But, but then, so that leads me to my second question. And because you mentioned solar panels so often is, have you looked at the economics of the, uh, of the whole solution? Because at the end of the day, again, I've, I've mentioned this in the past, changing behavior is very difficult. And so me yeah. as, uh, as an asset owner, let's call my, a building or a parking lot or whatever, uh, I'll need to choose between putting up one of your panels or a solar panel that produces electricity that I can use or sell to the grid. So how does the economics yeah. work here? As far as the economics go, we have solar integrated onto the system and we're talks with another solar company too that has uh, an experimental type of panel that lets UV through it okay. uh, to keep going to the algae. But uh, right now we integrate a solar panel onto the system so it doesn't have to be a competition between two great technologies. Uh, the solar panel also provides power to the pumps that push the algae around because we want it to be sustainably powered. So, okay, and um, yeah, uh, could can you uh, can you sort of uh, elaborate? I, I I didn't get quite so much of context in terms of how are you planning to harvest uh, the algae? Yeah, so I guess I'll start from the start. Um, algae needs water to grow in general, so really uh, algae needs nutrient rich water. So it's actually makes sense to pump the water from this building that's already been slightly used, not obviously like sewage water, but water from the building that has already been used through the algae because then it gets the nutrients it needs. So the algae uh, does like two stages of filter filtration on this water and then you can add another filter at the end. So 
water is coming through the building and flowing through the algae and it's cleaning the water to a certain extent. But we have a truck, basically like a trash or recycle truck that goes around and it there's basically it'll be a tube on the side of the building coming down and going into the truck and the truck collects the algae leaves a portion of it so that it can regrow and start the regrowth process because algae rapidly grows. So this process needs to happen every four to seven days, depending on the size of the site. And the truck would go around, compress the algae, and then it would bring it to a processing center where then it is just dried up and produced into a pellet that can be made into either a foam or a plastic. So algae, I suppose, is a, is a, a good, Raw material, raw material, and one that you can sell for for some money. So, what sort of if it's a tube at the side of the building, what stops me as a regular citizen to just grab the tube and take the algae? I've never got this question. Like, no one has ever asked me this. I don't know. We should put like a face ID on there or something like that, maybe. But no, okay. like that's that's not a great answer. I know, but something I don't we haven't talked about with my team about you know possibilities of someone stealing it. Okay. Is land yeah. really so expensive that it makes sense to build it up in urban areas versus, I mean, the U.S. is full of empty nothing. Well, my Could operations you... guy always says, like, in regards to that question, he always says, why don't we just, instead of bringing the nutrients, which is the carbon dioxide and all of the things that we feed algae with to the algae, why don't we bring the algae to the nutrients where we know that buildings are have all, a great, like, source of wastewater that we could use as well as carbon dioxide content produced by all the cars on the road well then could you just do it at like wastewater facilities so then you could have centralized places where you do this it makes it easier the logistics aren't a nightmare and you have it all growing in one large place that could maybe even yeah. then potentially filter the water yeah and you're completely correct we could utilize wastewater facilities and energy production facilities early on as part of our process. And I live in um, Carlsbad, California, and there's a plant right down the street from me. And I've always like been emailing those guys, like just trying to get a hold of them. Um, Cause I know that it would be a great solution in that case. How, how does the, the price of uh, algae as a raw material compare to those traditional raw materials that, uh, that are used in foams, plastics, advanced materials, whatnot? Yeah, algae right now is about um, a, around twice the cost or three times the cost of a plastic and foams raw material that exists based off of the fossil fuel extrusion. But uh, we believe that we'd be able to get the price down to the same and maybe lower. And the reason for that is the biggest change for that comes from split mixotropic growth um, that we'd be using. Yeah. And it, at first, like when we first start, when we're first commercializing, the algae will still be around $100 per ton higher than oil and fossil fuels. But with economies of scale, if we have about five, uh, five locations producing algae in two cities, th that's when we could probably get the price at or lower in those cities for, um, algae per ton versus the fossil fuel plastic and foam counter counterpart when uh when do you anticipate you'll be launching this uh or be commercial 
I got off the phone with my engineer right before I talked to you guys. And our goal is 2024. We, as far as when I say $100,000 for prototyping, we already wrote half the paper. We have all of the research and development done. We just need to validate the data that has already been validated in South Korea. So then we can raise a seed. We 2024, it takes six months for us to prototype and get the data done. That's to begin commercialization. Okay. And what about that seed? Uh, how, how are you looking at that? That seed is basically for us to get one large production facility. Um, and this production facility will compress the algae. It'll also get us one truck that can service up to five locations. If we had five locations installed, that'll also get us um, more team members in regards to managing new locations. You know, you don't need someone to manage them, but you need somebody to measure, keep measurements and basically a, a tech that, you know, could be going and servicing things if needed. And also we pay for the algae panels to get installed, which sounds pretty um, controversial as a business model, but that's what the seed would entail. And I believe it'd be around $2.1 million to raise that. Can, can you elaborate on that part? So you're, you're paying, uh, what was that? Sorry. So we don't generate revenue, much like Virginia's business model that she was talking about with the toilets, where the revenue generation comes from. We don't, we don't make revenue from manufacturing and selling algae panels. Mm -hmm. We believe that will inhibit adoption, quick adoption if we were to do that. Rather, we are open to like a competition. We wanna open source the panels. We wanna get it installed everywhere as much as possible so that everybody's sequestering carbon dioxide with algae where we make money is generating revenue by selling it as a product. And that's our focus because we just care about the, the plastics and foams portion of it. We just wanted to do it in a cool way because we're kind of crazy. But um, as far as the foams and plastics go, that's all of our revenue generation. And it would be able to cover the cost of putting these panels on the buildings. And then in that case, you don't inhibit or stop anybody from adopting the technology. It's a fairly easy it's a fairly easy thing to adopt when you're a company that has fossil fuel emissions and you're thinking, what's a solution for all of my fossil fuel emissions? Oh, I could put, I can offset my emissions with these. So we wanted to make adoption easy. And if anybody competes with us, then it's, it's completely fine because we need it. Sorry if that, you know, went on a tangent. Do you share revenues with, uh, asset owner or do they just have algae growing on their building? Yeah. So this is actually a great piggyback off of Yao's question because uh, if, an, if uh, an asset owner or building owner wanted to own the panels, that's an option too. In that case, we would be seen only like a management company managing the algae, coming and collecting it, taking it away, almost like Caviar's company. So in that case, we would share revenues off of a split with them. So the, there's... The business model is flexible and there's multiple types of contracts to be made. We just know the low hanging fruit for us, like is just the easy thing to do is increase the adoption as much as possible. But I'm sure that a bunch of people would want to own these type of panels as the word gets out about it. Um, I guess one, one last question. Uh, when, uh, in terms of R&D, uh, is the product fully sort of developed? Uh, at, or Well, not, not really the product, but, but the panels. 
and the processes are, are, are these fully developed at the moment yeah we we have like our whole team been working on this for two years and i guess this is like something i just was discussed with matt is the biggest like failure point or problem that we might encounter is that we're like team of scientists and guys making this panel but we need to be sharks we need to launch into the business so the panel is more than fully developed like research has been so so much research and development has done on the mathematical engineering flows analysis loads analysis everything is everything is pristine it's just you know we just need to get it in a solid form just to show people what it looks like and then we know that it'll jump start and people just see it if i were to show you it right here right now in front of our faces and that's not how it works with products it. though people don't just jump for it you still got to be yeah, able to but, sell it because pe people can also do solar people can do green roof or people can do other types of options so how you get yeah. them and why you get them especially if there's so many complicated logistics i'd rather have solar on my roof because otherwise it's going to be a pain in the, it's going to be a pain in the ass with people coming constantly to collect the algae yeah well people won't go um this is not a residential solution by the way not yet anyways we don't want to like overcomplicate mm -hmm. things with ourselves but as far as what we sell is algae as a product and the end product is usually like a fork or a knife or a foam that goes in a box that you're going to get from Amazon tomorrow. And the thing is, is people don't really care about the, the products that they consume yet. I mean, maybe in some demographics they do, but we need to really shift the psychology before something like this is successful. And I think one of the best, um, one of the best ways for us to shift the psychology is through experiential marketing. So the, th the same thing that makes this business look kind of like difficult to accomplish, which is putting algae on buildings, is also the, the savior for the business model. Because if someone is holding their Starbucks cup up and walking into their office building, uh, they like see the, the algae on the building and they're like, oh, that's where this came from. And you're making a whole new level of consumer engagement and changing how people make purchase decisions psychologically, almost like a farmer with only plants. if only if so, the algae's on Starbucks roof though. So if the algae's yeah. on anyone else's roof, then it doesn't apply. No, it does apply. It it's people still see it and they know that the products that they consume, even if it wasn't a Starbucks cup, I was just using it as an example. But um it's people could make the connection internally. And if, even if we don't realize it, we make it subconsciously. So it's it's pretty weird, I know, but yeah. I, I don't know. I'm I'm hesitant. I think you need a lot more. I think you need a lot more of a reason for building owners to adopt it versus on another solution. I don't think you have that unless you're sharing revenues with them. Yeah. That's my two cents. Yeah. Do you have any, any other thoughts? No, I, I agree. So I, I think this, uh, again, the opportunity costs of this versus current, uh, current, uh, solutions on the market. I, I just don't see it yet. I do think you could think about this a little bit better. Uh, yeah. Like uh, like Matt said, if I if I am to put one of your panels on on my building, uh, it better make sense. Otherwise, I'll I'll just put a, a solar panel up and call it a day. Or a gr or a green roof. Or, or if you want to get real yeah. creative, grow. And you're in California, grow like marijuana or something on top of the roof. If you want to be real creative. Fair. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah you yeah. <laughs> I, I see Maybe, it for but... I see it for airports. I see it for wastewater treatment. I don't see it yet for buildings. 
Yeah. That, well, what you're talking about is the buildings that I've been talking about. Airports. I actually reached out to the new San Diego mm-hmm. airport terminal. That's that's the type of when I say buildings, I'm not talking like a skyscraper in a downtown city. Um, okay, you got to you got to clarify that because I'm imagining yeah. like Uber drivers yeah. going this way and that with a, with a no, big ass yeah. garbage truck there's, picking up. There's, there's so much opportunity for this type on just it, especially airports. Think of all the planes just taking off over there. There's mm-hmm. so much carbon dioxide to be captured, um, especially if you integrate direct air capture onto the side of the algae. It's just pulling in carbon dioxide emissions and making then it, it just makes algae. it a lot more expensive than what it already is. No, you make more algae, then you make more money. It's just opportunity costs like you were talking about. But, um, I understand but I, that, I, but, I understand but capturing carbon saying. right now is still extremely expensive. Yeah, that's why we wanted to just trying to come up with a different solution. But okay. you guys are correct as well. Like with, like, you know, I totally, I, I completely understand. It's, it's very interesting. I hope you get there. I think you can, but you gotta, you yeah. gotta refine that. You gotta refine that, that and the incentives a little bit. And now, yeah. um, good luck, John. Well, Thanks, <laughs> we guys. Had, thank you so much for uh, presenting, John. We had uh, we had one thing on a roof. Let's put another thing on a roof. Uh, Lior, you want to share a little bit about your uh, awesome Thanks, new guys. solar tech out of Israel? Hi, how are you? Yes. Just awesome. a second. Me and Matan will represent. Just a second. Oh, Matan is here as well. Okay. You ready? Your five minutes starts now. Can you hear okay. me? Okay. Yep. Hi, everyone. And we start. Hi, everyone. I'm Leo Bar Shalom, the CEO for Bell Energy. I would like to introduce you to Matan Arbel, our CTO. Our planet's most powerful source of energy is the sun. All we want is to make sure this energy realized effectively as possible. You probably already know that, but solar energy panels are mainly made by silicon today. The silicon solar cells still rated heavy and inefficient, typically allowing between 20% efficiency and requiring scaffolding to apply them on the surface. In the recent years, there have been several innovations in the field of solar cells, and a number of players have entered to the market with the thin and flexible solar cell. The thin-based solar panel provides flexibility lightweight and affordable manufacture, but they're very inefficient. We're talking about between 10 to 15% efficiency. But some of the thin flame technology are based on nanocrystal. So nanocrystals are basically very small uh, crystals that their dimension gives them uh, very good uh, attributes, physical attributes that can be used for solar applications. Uh, These attributes include uh, band gap controllability, basically, that we can control which wavelength we can uh, respond to. Uh, high probability for multi-exciton generation, basically meaning that we can make more electron from energetic photons and high absorbance efficiency. In addition, these materials are very well known as far as synthesis and manufacturing uh, capabilities with, so the manufacturing cost of this technology is expected to be very, very low. Our company developed a new type of architecture uh, based on nanocrystals that utilizes all these attributes for a huge technological advantage 
for solar cell application. And that will allow us to make lightweight solar cells flexible. Basically, we can put this uh, architecture on whatever substrate we want. We can control the transparency, so we can make it semi-transparent. And as I said, also low manufacturing cost. But the main thing is, is that we can raise the efficiency from the current around 20% to uh, 50% and beyond. So uh, this, this technology can be a game changer as far as the solar world is concerned. Uh, currently, we're running a development project with uh, TNO in their Alliance facility in Eindhoven. Uh, in that research, we've already uh, created and developed uh, ultra-thin uh, structures that's between 30 to 40 nanometers thick that produce the highest current density that is any, of any equivalent uh, uh, structure there is, the equivalent uh, thickness, basically making it one of the most efficient, uh, not one of the most efficient uh, uh, structures and technologies that we have today and making it extremely applicable to various applications. So our technology make it possible to achieve high efficiency. We're talking about over 50% in low weight application for cars, buses, drones, uh, building integrate PV system, uh, power in space, powered boats, and it can also function as a wallpaper solution. Uh, the competitive landscape includes several players in our market. Our advantage is the superior efficiency due to our groundbreaking technology. So our current development project is we're wrapping up the small-scale device now, and we're moving to the uh, prototype stage, which will be a large-scale device, which will also be produced and uh, synthesized with uh, large-scale manufacturing in mind. Basically meaning that we can take the, the knowledge that we do when we do the prototype and we can uh, translate it to large scale manufacturing very, very fast. One minute warning. Okay, so our current budgetary requirement for the next 18 months are $2 million, uh, raising now $1 million in a safe agreement. And we believe that we can raise additional $2 million from non-deluding uh, governmental funds like Horizon and et cetera. Uh, this is our team. Uh, also, uh, Ruth Peter is our IP expert who bring with him extensive experience and leading our IP strategy. Thank you. And thank you. Great presentation. Thank I certainly have questions, but I think we have someone who's more of an expert here. So I would hand things over to Yao first. EDP's deep in the space. What do you, what do you got, Yao? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I have a, firstly one my question is actually not a question is just that if you can speak a bit about your uh, your IP and what it is that you're protecting I can see sort of a, a, a Jinko solar a Canadian solar or whatever of these big, big manufacturers of solar panels um, they have quite large R&D teams so what stops them from sort of eventually achieving your efficiencies on, on, on their solar panels why haven't they done that yet well, that's exactly why, why I'm asking what, what exactly. <laughs> uh, well, talking. the patents are basically the structure itself. The, the technology is based on a revolutionary uh, conduction, uh, uh, conduction model that allows us to re-engineer these uh, structures, nanostructures. So the, the patent themselves, we have one patent pending and one provisional. Uh, that are basically the structure itself. The material themselves are well known, uh, both what you said for solar and uh, I don't remember the other company, both of them are using 
similar materials, but the issue is the conduction mechanism that is done in their solar cell. Okay. Uh, what about the sort of durability of these uh, of uh, these panels? Because most flex panels have an issue with uh, durability. Uh, what what's your uh, take on that? Well, current, we're currently using materials that already have that are are already used on different applications that have five year warranty. Uh, so we haven't uh, started even the life uh, extended to the technology themselves, because right now we're in the, as I said, we're in the prototype stage, but we expect to be able to uh, raise that uh, lifetime significantly, mainly because the materials that we're using now are not UV susceptible. They don't react very well to oxygen, so they do need to be encapsulated, but these technologies are basically shelf, uh, shelf manufacturing technology to encapsulate your, your solar cell. And also the, the, the current technologies have them already. So we're not very worried about that. Um, and you mentioned, so who are your main, or who do you see as your main customers? It, I think it's a, it depends on the application because our efficiency is very high. It's actually mean that we have the ability to be almost everywhere in solar uh, industry. We're looking for to bring uh, to be the game changer or all kind of area that it's not going to be uh, our eye competition. So we're looking for a mobility and a uh, thing that will be, uh, or our effort is that we lightweight and flexibility and also transportation. Um, so kind of mobility that really, really help us to achieve uh, our uh, benefit compared to the other thing that we have in the market right now. Yeah, so so that's my point. And that was actually my second question is where where are you in terms of cost or uh, me as an end user, how much would, me, would it cost me to, to have one of your panels uh, as opposed to a conventional sort of heavyweight regular panel? Um, and, and well, yeah. Currently when we do a BOM, um, calculation, we're at about $60 per meter squared. Mm -hmm. And in our, with our technology, uh, one meter squared is expected to do about 600 watts, which is about the same as, uh, it's a bit more than current existing uh, uh, silicon solar panels. So it's half the, the area, but a little bit over uh, with the efficiency. So as far as that's concerned, uh, it's about if you want to use whatever metrics, but so we expect it to be about ten cents a watt. So if you're okay. talking, so if you're talking silicon, you're around twenty-five, thirty-ish. If you're talking any thin film today, it's about one dollar to one and a half dollar per cent uh, per watt. Sorry. Uh, so as far as that's concerned, the the expected uh, manufacturing costs are very very low because we expect to use. Roll-to-roll uh, -roll techniques, which are manufacturing-wise, is very cheap to to use. Okay, that's interesting. So, do you see? Would you see sort of, uh, as you uh, potentially know, uh, EDP has quite a lot of uh, sort of solar and wind farms. Could could you see sort of a whole solar park uh, being equipped with your technology, or would that? sort of be redundant in terms of economics? No, well, we've already talked to a lot of the, a lot of the solar market today is actually uh, very regulated. So a lot of the current existing uh, solar uh, farms uh, can just replace uh, their existing uh, technology with ours or just 
put a put this put a sticker on. The main idea of this technology is to change the way you think of solar, because what we want to do is basically instead of you thinking of a panel that weighs about 30 kilograms and it's very cumbersome to to handle, mm -hmm. we want to make it basically a, a wallpaper. Stick it where, wherever you want. You want to stick it on existing uh, fields. Stick it on existing field. It, it will just increase your your efficiency. You want to put it on building. You can put it. You can insert it into the building's uh, infrastructure cycle. Basically, every building you have to you have a, a painting cycle and you have a wallpaper cycle and all that. I'm talking big buildings. I'm not talking. Uh, mm -hmm. So you anyway need to uh, do some sort of uh, maintenance on the high high building so add uh, add a, a sticker or more like a wallpaper and then make make electricity out of it it okay. changes the way you think of how you're going to use solar it, it also allows you to change the basic uh, kilogram per watt we expect one meter square to be around 300 grams between 300 and 500 grams per meter square so on a 600 watt one meter squared you can do whatever you want. You can put it on cars. You can put it on trucks. You can you can do whatever you want. But this actually allows you to utilize the solar uh, the solar power as a, as a as an actual uh, power to you to use on your engines rather than just power your lights, which is what solar cars do today. Solar cars do at best they'll maybe power the onboard computer maybe. So, but instead of that, you're you're talking about something that with uh, a small a small truck can can run solar. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of sort of the, this being commercial, when would you expect this to happen? Well, when we finish our uh, prototype stage, we expect because we move from uh, one uh, development project to the to the next, but the the move is expected to be very short we're the reason that we're doing our development project in alliance is that they're extremely well posed to take uh this kind of technology to large-scale manufacturing they actually have all the machinery already in-house so we expect to we, we want or expect to do the first pilots probably with them and then when we get the actual definition of all the machinery, then building a factory will will require uh, collaborations. We I don't have or we don't have the knowledge or the expertise to build an actual manufacturing, but we expect to uh, achieve this knowledge or to to get this knowledge with uh, strategic collaboration. Okay, and um, you mentioned sort of uh, the prototyping stage. Uh, what exactly? So what exactly entails this prototyping uh, and how, so do you have, do you have uh, anything to back up your 50 something percent efficiency that you claim? Yes, we currently have in the lab, we built a three by three uh, centimeter uh, solar cell that we sample with the pixels because that's how the, the labs work. You basically, you do your, on, on a slab of glass, that's a substrate, that's three by three centimeters. And then you move, to a 10 by 10 centimeters or a six and a half inch by six and a half inch. And the reason we say that when we move it for two reasons, first of all, a prototype, the base cell of current solar uh, technologies is, is 100 uh, centimeters squared, basically 10 by 10 centimeters. So when you do a basic cell or a basic module, depends on what, how you want to call it. But when you do a 10 by 10, 
that's your basic um, uh, module for panels today. So that's why we consider that as a prototype. So right now we're at the stage of wrapping up the small scale device, defining all of the materials and all of the structures, and then moving it to the larger scale when we, the, the fabrication techniques that we're gonna use are fabrication techniques that are posed to be compatible to roll-to-roll -to -roll manufacturing. So the move from uh, from the with the fabrication techniques is basically speeds and ink quantities, and that's why we expect it to be in a short amount of time to reach the 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 the, the manufacturing capabilities and definitions. Would you say there is a risk that uh, that this efficiency is somewhat dwarfed as you scale? the risk itself is not in the efficiency right now the problem is actually raising money because the the environment is really bad with raising, with raising money but no because the what we get now is we get uh close to 100 percent yield with our small scale device so yes there's always a risk when you move from a small scale to a larger scale but it's mitigated with the techniques that we know and we have a partner that's that's their main um expertise so that's why we're doing this with them when something sounds too good to be true it usually is what is wrong here where are the big issues what's not come up yet i don't know what i don't know yet i can tell you that in the lab there was since this uh structure is a very uh very very small nanometric structure quite literally and what we found out is that we need to, uh, to put more emphasis on uh, accurate material and deposition techniques in order to achieve a more ideal um, uh, relationship or, or uh, coordination between the materials themselves because it's a nanometric structure. That much I can tell you, but this is something that we already, we've already overcome. So if you're asking what are the future uh, uh, challenges, then I, I, I don't know what I don't know. The, the model itself predicts most of all of the behavior we see in the lab and, and add some. So right now we're working on the engineering part. So engineering usually is a when question, not an if question. The if questions was already answered because we have a working solar cell that shows the efficiency. It shows that that the, the current densities is crazy high. How sorry? Uh, how is uh, how is you just mentioned that raising money is a challenge? How is this a challenge? Because uh, you like like Matt said, you you have a panel that's going over fifty percent efficiency, and that's sort of a true game changer because currently, and as you mentioned, you have 15 or 20 to 20% efficiency rate uh, ranges. I mean, anyone can-, can We don't have a panel. Them. We have we have a working have the, well, you, you, prototype. True, but, but you have a- you have the, Does the, that mean you want to invest in us? That's great. Um, could be, um, but-, uh, but the, the, the challenge right now is because we just got the, the report. We, it's, it's happened right now. So we just start to raise the money right now and we just start. So just got it uh, like a week and a half, two weeks ago. So we, okay. we just start to raise the money. So the situation right now, you know, also in, uh, in Israel, etc., 
but we believe that we raise the money. It's a question of time. How do you go to market? What's your strategy? Go to market strategy? It's actually, it's too early to really uh, mention that right now because we uh, develop it right now, but we already think, and I mentioned that in the presentation that we are looking to get, probably to start with the mobility um, because we have the ability to be lightweight and the high efficiency. That's something that really, really important to you guys this kind of industry. So probably much will start in this kind of uh, industry. Any last questions on your side, Yao? Um, just perhaps one sort of uh, uh, what you see as a sort of excluding financing, what you see as your sort of uh, biggest challenge moving forward? High scale manufacturing. Okay. We need to define the machinery very, very accurately. That's why the next stage, the prototype stage, is very critical because all of the um, fabrication techniques will be will have to be uh, upscaled and those are you need to define a machine that does the all of the stages in one go in order to have the roll to roll manufacturing so the definition between moving from a lab on a, a, a from a structure that we build on basically a, a big glass substrate to a roll to roll manufacturing this whole um technique and the whole definition of the stages uh, that's that's a that's an engineering challenge i wouldn't say it's a it's a risk because it's it's basically an engineering i mm. we already uh researched a few of the uh manufacturing companies that manufacture the machinery and they're very interested in in working us in the in 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 the future but as as i said we need first to define the full process Clear. Thank you. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. Uh, nice, Thank to, you. nice to meet you and, and, and good luck. Thank you Thank very you. much. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, guys. And before we jump to our last company of the night, all of this is brought to you by Forward VC and our partner in crime, Climate Accelerator. Uh, if you're interested in 12-week hands-on hardcore introductions to companies, partners, pilots to try to land some serious traction so that you can go and raise your round, you want to find out more about having an actual partner in crime on your side versus uh, founder-friendly, which means, well, we all know what founder-friendly means, then check out forward.vc, the number forward.vc. We invest in companies that move the world forward and help you do the same. And last, but certainly not least, we've got Andy with Ip House. Andy is trying to build a new kind of multifamily unit in a new way. You ready, Andrew? Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, and just uh, to clarify, it's IP House. Um, sorry, Alex Oh, it's IP jump. House. I was thinking yeah. Ip Man. I apologize. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that, that works uh, for Southeast Asian market, I guess, right? Yes, <laughs> it does. Um, okay, great. So um, I'll share screen. Um, can you all see my screen? Looking good. Your five minutes starts now. Take it away. Okay. I'm uh, Andy, CEO and founder of IP House, a turnkey prefab construction tech product focusing on providing novel affordable housing solutions for difficult to build in spaces. Um, we've been addressing, um, based on on-the-ground experience for the last couple of decades, working in design and construction, uh, industry that's been slow to change. 
uh, introducing more efficient environmentally and community-focused uh, solutions, um, saving 1.9 tons of CO2 emissions per build uh, and reducing 11.4 tons of waste per build um, uh, and tapping into under-realized uh, under, uh, uh, infolot market. The core of what we're addressing is really a lack of alignment across the entire uh, design through construction value chain, uh, resistance to integration of new construction tech, uh, missed opportunity for recycling and upcycling of building parts, and addressing the inefficiencies of conventional construction, which are often too disruptive, slow, and complicated for uh, building in dense urban areas. Um, here, see, make sure the sound's off. Um, uh, so our solution is IP House, a first of its kind multifamily building kit focused on difficult to build in spaces such as infolots um, uh, via a standardized paneliz uh, panelization system, which allows for fast and easy assemblage. Um, and our products is a software and hardware integrated platform um, with a digital toolkit, with, uh, which allows for input of site information, auto configuration of building structure and envelope allowing for configuration of multiple lots at a fraction of the time. Uh, included is interior space planning options, which are accessible online with supporting 3D visuals to better understand, or understand interior space planning and spatial qualities. Uh, the output is a 3D BIM model, um, which uh, outputs structure, wall buildups, um, interior specs, and is uh, generated for use of building submissions and manufacturing. Um, included also uh, is a digital twin, uh, which um, is accessible via mobile apps on site, um, helps to um, uh, streamline coordination, uh, double check design to construction, um, and is really addressing one of the common pain points within construction. Um, overall, uh, um, the digital side of what we're doing um, really addresses um, uh, and streamlines communication, uh, project tracking, and uh, construction coordination. Uh, the core of the building technology uses cold form steel, uh, using 50% less steel than reinforced concrete, and, allow, and following AISI standards to ensure full DOB compliance, as well as saving over 11.3 tons of potential landfill per, um, uh, per build. Uh, we've been focusing on developing a system which is easy to adapt, requires no additional capital investment, and reduces the amount of labor needed on site, capital investment inside of GCs or builders. Our panels are designed to be upcycled and recycled. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm a bit out of sequence. Our panels are designed to be upcycled and recycled, um, and uh, 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 during occupancy for interiors and post-occupancy after the building has reached obsolescence. Um, our total uh, addressable market right now, sorry, my computer's a bit slow. I'll hold on for a second, trying to, okay. Uh, uh, we're starting with New York, uh, with the New York City infolot uh, market, a $23 billion opportunity uh, with over 5,200 uh, R5 to R7 zone lots available for development with an average return of 300,000 per build. Um, we're targeting completion of 150 builds within five years with an ROI of 20, 52 million and an average life uh, time frame of 18 months per build. Um, we're we're um, slated to kick off um, our first pilot project build in Bedstein, uh, Brooklyn, um, uh, third quarter of this year. Uh, we have um, a site um, uh, secured or negotiating a uh, joint venture with a landowner and are um, bringing some additional investment visa uh, visa VR um, uh, current investors um, for construction financing um, and One also warning. including some debt financing. Debt financing. Okay, got it. Um, uh, overall, our strategy is to start um, focusing on New York, uh, then expand through the U.S., 
uh, and then eventually expanding uh, globally. Uh, the core to um, what we've been doing in New York for the last couple of years is actually building um, uh, a pretty strong network. Um, we're a part of the uh, New Lab of uh, Founders Fellowship cohort, which is supported by Bank of America, uh, Mayor Adams' office, and uh, New York City Economic Development Corporation. In addition to that, we've gone through four rounds of engineering panel mockups with our manufacturing partner and our prototyping partner, uh, and have gone through uh, vetting um, whether or not uh, there are going to be any issues with the um, DOB submissions or in part of the city for what we're doing. Uh, so I've established um, uh, supply su supply chain um, uh, collaborations or relationships. And time with is Mix, up. Et okay. How much you How much you guys raising? Um, we're like right now we. Um, uh, we have uh, 250,000 uh, pledge from uh, New York Ventures. Um, uh, it's uh, um, it's a matching pledge, meaning if we uh, raise in, they'll they'll match up to 250,000 of whatever whatever else we raise. Um, we're this round we're looking at raising a total of a million. Um, we have 50,000 additional um, pledge from our uh, initial investors. Uh, and we're looking to raise another 200,000 to um, uh, uh, minimum to match the New York Ventures pledge. Um, and then uh, from there, we'll look to raise an additional 500,000. Everything was really interesting. It, it was a great pitch. You nailed everything. You were very technical, sometimes a little bit too technical. But the, just the one thing, I didn't feel a lot of passion. It seemed pretty monotonous. Why are you doing this? Um, yeah, you know, I think it's like... Um, Part of the thing that I'm not used to, which is five minute pitches. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really hard to be personal within five minutes. Um, and I think the pitches on thing, I'm uh, way better at talking with EDC or Bank of America in a conference room for an hour than I am uh, on Zoom. Uh, nothing to, against pitchathons at all, but it's it's you know something I've done I think two times before or whatnot. So the lack of personality is uh, uh, personableness is probably me trying to cram everything in within five minutes, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no worries. No worries. I, I mean, it's very interesting. Yeah. Do you want to take things away? Yeah. Just trying to understand what's your go-to market. So uh, how are you finding your customers? Um, yeah. Our our main uh, go-to-market strategy is really um, the the uh, relationships we've been developing, uh, we've been developing with uh, real estate development brokers, um, with real estate developers. Um, we've had ongoing conversations with Habitat for Humanity over the last year um, and are looking at doing a pilot project with them. Um, we're basically going to people that um, have access to land and looking at uh, forming partnerships with them for development of land. The great thing about um, Habitat and um, like community land trusts have been talking to you in New York is uh, they, um, they get um, land for free oftentimes from the city. Um, so that's a huge bonus. Um, there's also, uh, I think the way real estate development works in general is, you know, it's a very networked, um, complicated ecosystem. Um, what we're trying to do is reduce the complexity from the construction and manufacturing side of things. Um, what we're trying to do is streamline um, our go-to-market um, uh, strategy through being very aggressive about setting up, you know, partnerships with people that have access to land that, you know, um, see value in what we're doing. I would say overall, on um, the last couple of years, the response has been really amazing. We weren't sure about uh what we're doing how that was going to jive with new york um you know uh, given prefab as well um there's no one in new york doing what we're doing right now uh, most of the other uh prefab that's um been realized has been a uh, volumetric um which is where you build up the whole room 
Um, what we're introducing is something that's really more along the lines of a Kia. It's flat pack, um, so it's way more efficient in terms of shipping. When you're uh, shipping volumetric, when you're doing volumetric, you're shipping like, you know, 60 to 80% error. Um, when you're doing flat pack, it's just way more efficient what you can cram into container um, or stack in a container. Um, I think logistically, too, in terms of set down space on site um, and just like the what we've developing, been developing from the construction tech side um, doesn't require cranes for assemblage, um, can be, you know, use lightweight equipment like micro cranes and a lot of things lifted by hand. Um, the other value add that we've been looking at is really, you know, um, starting from the question of why has another prefab taken off in New York City um, and why hasn't a lot of prefab taken off in the U.S. in general? Um, I think one of the things that we've um, found with a lot of companies is that are focused on the technology side, but they're not focused on the implementation side, um, which is to say if you're dealing with general contractors that um, are looking at integrating in a new way of doing things, if it's way outside of their comfort zone or the wheelhouse, it's a non-starter. Because um, it's just too much of a risk given the amount of capital investment required. Uh, if they have to, you know, um, uh, invest in new equipment or things like that, it's just uh, not something that people are willing to do. So we've been really um, uh, simplifying, um, but keeping the you know, core value proposition of um, cost competitive. We're about thirty percent less um, than standard construction is right now. Um, we're reducing the amount of people that need to be on site for builds um, for three floor builds. That's five units. It's about 3000 square feet. It's a team of four people that can assemble it in about a month, um, which is for New York is pretty amazing. Um, okay. So we yeah, so we, we've been really thinking through it holistically from conversations with other VCs that have looked at, you know, uh, construction tech startups. Um, their, their issue is like on um, main issues are the price points and their go-to-market strategy that they haven't really thought through, you know, um, how this is going to be received by real estate development groups or general contractors, et cetera. Uh, I, I, my next question, I think you sort of partially answered it uh, a couple of times, but um, so as a, as a landowner or as a developer, what's, what's, what's my incentive in going through just rather than a traditional build? Uh, yeah, so speed be, would be one thing. And the other thing is, mm -hmm. you know, um, a lot of the infill lots, we were really surprised to find there's like over 570 million square feet of vacant land listed in New York's Pluto database. Um, New York's really great at, you know, um, finding information online about the city, about lots, et cetera. Um, what we found is with a lot of the infill lots, there are 2,000 square feet. They're like, you know, 19, 20 feet wide by 100 feet deep. Um, they've been sitting empty for decades because uh, the landowners don't know what to do with it. They don't want to um, uh, deploy conventional construction because it's really complicated and super messy. Um, if you do a conventional build, you're dealing with like 10, 20 different contractors. Uh, and for smaller builds, a lot of the contractors just want to get in and out. Uh, there's not a lot of you know incentive. It's a smaller project, so there's not a huge margin. Um, what we're doing is simplifying the whole design to manufacturing construction side of things, simplifying the whole sort of assemblage process um, and uh, providing solutions that, you know, allow for minimal disruption to local neighborhoods um, uh, as construction is on, uh, taking place. If you think about New York, I don't know if you all have been to New York or not, but if you go into Brooklyn or Queens or different places, you have really narrow residential streets. 
uh, and you have like neighbors that are very sensitive to, you know, two, three year long, four year long construction timeframes. Um, so um, from a lot of property owners or landowners, you know, from their perspective, they're just like, you know, it's um, doing conventional builds is really um, not a big of a un, uh, big enough of a payoff. Um, one of the market validations um, that we've had has been from real estate brokers like um, Marcus and Millichap and um, uh, and Madison State Sotheby's International, um, they they have access to a lot of land they've been sitting on for a long time um, that they haven't been able to move. So if we can make this work, um, then it's something that uh, they see a lot of value in. Uh, coupled with the fact that New York has a huge housing crisis right now, um, they need like another 200,000 homes with, by 2025, which they're not going to hit that mark. Uh, Governor Huckel, I just attended a... Um, uh, a forum that was hosted by um, someone, uh, Jessica Katz, the head of like um, uh, of New York City's building department. She was um, there uh, planning 800,000 homes in the next 10 years, which for New York, I think is really ambitious. Um, but the capabilities of what we can do from the manufacturing side, say we can do 150 home or multifamily builds, three floors or to five floors uh, per year. Um, and we're targeting 150 over five years um, to be a bit more on the conservative side. But for New York, that's really, um, really, um, really ambitious uh, overall. When, uh, usually, so usually speed and, and cost always comes hand in hand with a compromise. Uh, so, and I'm by no means an expert in prefab, but uh, where would you sort of stack uh, yourselves against other traditional builds in terms of sort of durability? And well, sort of if, if I'm if I am to be in one of these, will I hear my neighbor showering? I, I, I don't know. Just uh, try to understand. So, how do you compare in terms of quality and dur durability wise uh, to, to tr traditional builds? I would say like um. If you go into um, more as uh, as a uh, case in point, if you go into single family home construction or you go into more rural areas in America, uh, people are already starting to um, switch to using um, cold form steel, which is the core um, structural um, uh, technology we're using um, from timber because uh, it's it's way more efficient uh, across the board, um, better in terms of price comparisons um, and super durable at last, you know, like a uh, uh, CFS, the CFS structure lasts for like up to 700 years or something like that. So actually the quality um, is really based on the manufacturing of the panels. We found a really great manufacturing partner um, that's very seasoned uh, multifamily home builder. Um, they really love what we're doing. Um, and it's something where in the end, the quality is better than when you get from uh, on-site construction. Because if you think about it, um, everything from prefab is done in the factory uh, with, you know, um, more accessible equipment in a controlled environment. A lot of um, uh, standard construction in New York is still people pulling equipment onto site and cutting wood on site, or you know, cutting like you know materials on site or whatnot. So the um, the the end result is uh, something that's uh, less precise. Um, I think the caveat for prefab is across the board, it's more precise, better quality. Um, but the thing that has has been the huge barrier is cost for New York. Uh, and just like um, uh, the projects that have been realized there just haven't been like um, very thorough in terms of the overall uh, project planning uh, in terms of um, the other companies that are integrated in as a part of the process. And there's been a lot of issues. So there's been um, a lot of um, 
cautiousness about prefab, but a lot of interest in it too. And I think there's going to be an inflection point within the next five years in the US where prefabs are going to take off. It's already happening in China and in Japan and Europe. US is just really behind the curve in terms of prefab uh, overall. Is there is there an IP involved? What's stopping any, any other prefab from doing something similar to you? Um, yeah, that's a great question, um, and that's something we we do have a, um, a provisional patent filed. Um, it's a systems utility patent. Um, in terms of the panel sizes um, and the connectors are the key thing um, that minimize the amount of uh, uh, screws and uh, bolts um, that need to go in to put the you know uh, the panels together. Standard CFS construction, which is already which is happening in New York right now, but um, that's largely done on site. Um, that's like, uh, you know, for a small structure that we're looking at three floors, that's 10,000 screws um, for one structure. Um, so what we're doing is um, exponentially lowering the amount of um, uh, fasting that needs to happen on site, um, which is why you need a smaller team in general to put things together on site as well. Okay. Um, what about um, what about in terms of sort of uh, development? Where where are you? Are you commercializing this? Are you still sort of uh, prototyping phase? Where exactly are you? Um, we've gone through a series of mockups. We'll have a, a panel demo at Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, as I mentioned, we're um, negotiating uh, with the land, or we have an agreement with the landowner to. We're formalizing the joint venture with them. Uh, we have like a, a full team ready to go in New York in terms of a general contractor, engineer, and architect of record um, for building submissions. We're we're basically ready to build something which will be um, the pilot project will be re uh, realized by the end of 2024, I think, um, uh, if everything goes in accordance with plan uh, with what we're planning right now. Um, so the the technology is um, uh, the core technology is there. Um, there's a couple of things we still need to. Um, uh, uh, to test out with the uh, DOB um, related to um, uh, prefab electrical and plumbing, because uh, that's not something that's been done in New York so much. But for the core uh, uh, CFS structure, no issues with that at all. Um, we're just following standard guidelines the DOB has in place. Um, uh, our default for um, a plumbing, if we can get the pl a prefab plumbing approved by the DOB, um, is just to do um, standard um, on-site installation for the plumbing and electrical. Um, so that'll slow things down a bit, but still not a huge issue uh, for what we're doing. Um, I think it's, you know, worst case scenario for DOB if we, if we need to go through um, um, a whole process of approvals with um, a department within the DOB for prefab, that can be a year to two years. Um, but for the core of what we're doing right now, we have a workaround or a contingency plan so we can do things um, while we're doing that in parallel. Okay, clear. Um, I guess oh, the, yeah. the other thing I wanted to add in, I don't know if this is going to make sense to you all. Um, the other, the other uh, thing for um, uh, building construction, multifamily construction, is um, the foundation. And the go-to for a lot of prefab is a concrete slab. Um, there's a lot of issues with you know the amount of time. It's like anywhere from uh, four to six to eight months to do the concrete slab for. Um, there's actually something used in New York, which we're integrating to what we're doing, um, modifying slightly, but um, it's a prefab um, uh, um, foundation um, uh, on construction tech. Um, it involves helical pilings, which are basically like corkscrews that go into the ground and precast concrete beams um, that the building sits on top of. So that 
um, gives you a window for of about 20, 20 days for the whole prefab um, construction um, versus six months. Um, so it's uh, another thing that's um, uh, a huge part of what we're doing. And the great thing is we're using precast concrete beams is they're easy to take out uh, and, and reuse um, in other buildings on other projects post the building's uh, life cycle or not. If you've got the technology, did you ever think about going the licensing or franchising model and trying to get other builders on board to use your systems to build this out? Why build it all and sell it all yourself and have to run everything? Um, you know, that's a great question. That's something we're exploring with someone in Southeast Asia right now. Um, I think for the New York market, we want to get a pilot project built. And that's something we're interested in the future looking at. Um, but I think from our perspective, our goal is to just really focus on one market um, and make sure there's a, a market can scale in, which New York definitely is. Um, I think if we do like a successful pilot project build in New York and are able to scale there, then it just opens up a lot more um, willingness for people in other markets to license what we're doing, our license, our tech, um, or to work with us in other markets. But we're also being very mindful about not doing too much at once, um, especially given how real estate develop development works. Um, it's like, you know, really complicated ecology um, or ecosystem overall. Um, so we just really want to nail New York uh, first. And, you know, everyone globally knows New York. So if we can do things there, everyone knows it's really difficult to build there. Um, if if we su can successfully scale there, um, then, uh, then it's really easy to go to Chicago, San Francisco, Miami, um, also, you know, we've been talking with um, uh, on and off with uh, Obayashi and Takanaka, two big construction companies in Japan. They're really interested in what we're doing, but they need to see some things built first, uh, more or less. Speaking of big e ecosystem and changes in general. So we had COVID and everyone realized mm -hmm. we're not going back to the office all the time. These right. office buildings are being used like 40% of the time. What does that do on the potential demand of your for your business and multi-home if and when governments and cities and building owners start to realize leaving their buildings empty a lot of the time doesn't make sense and started to use that for housing which they should be doing um yeah there's already some of that conversion already happening i think that um the thing undergirding everything is the price points um when you look at renovations which i've done a fair amount as an architect as well in the past uh, they can be more expensive than uh, new buildings are. Uh, and it, it really comes down to what the price points are and, you know, what the returns are. Um, I think there are conversions happening. I do think that, you know, renovating buildings is its own challenge uh, in the end as well, just in terms of you have to work through the city to get uh, uh, um, approval for changes of zoning to the building from like office to residential, for example. Um, it's 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 also a very complicated you know uh, ecosystem to navigate through. I would say even within New York, if they converted all the you know vacant office spaces into residential, they still have a, a housing shortage um, overall. Uh, there's just a huge demand and not enough supply right now. Say like globally right now, housing is a, you know especially affordable housing is a huge issue. The good thing about what we're doing for New York too is um, with Habitat is that's for the affordable housing market. Uh, and um, uh, our price points are coming in. At a, um, they're not insanely low, but you know, with tax rebates and everything else we're doing, they're competitive with standard con uh, standard construction, and it makes us um, a, a viable player for the affordable housing market too. 
what, what, what about the software bit? Is that is that itself not not sort of a, a business and monetizable? Uh, yeah, it it is, but you know that's like um I think. Uh, it's something we were just talking with uh, another VC out of um, based in Texas about. Um, I think what we're what we've been developing is like a turnkey solution for um, uh, for both software and hardware, um, which is to say, uh, what we're developing works with our system, with our panelization system. If we start to move into more general sort of can be any building configuration. Um, then uh, then there's a lot of other competitors in that market um, or that are entering that market. Um, for what we're doing for multifamily, there's basically uh, not very many companies doing what we're doing right now. Um, if we were to jump into the software market, there's a whole, uh, it's a whole different structure in terms of, um, you know, uh, customer support, in terms of licensing, uh, all of that. Um, and I think, you know, while the amount of capital investment for the software is less, um, or for a SaaS model is less than what we're doing. Um, if we can make what we're doing work, the the return is way better. Um, and just, I think our goal for New York is to really, if we do 150 builds in five years, that'll be um, unprecedented for New York. Um, and it's a you know it's a really good ROI um, for you know the initial investment. Um, we're like. Uh, talking about you know um, like uh, um, uh, over fifty million uh, return on an investment um, or more depending on the scale of the buildings, um, but um, I would say like um, uh, um, for us we've put so much sweat into uh, the hardware side of things um, coupled with the software side of things is something that we really want to push. We're very definitely very inspired by the IKEA model uh, as well. You know they're selling complete projects that um, are easily assemblable uh, and, you know, that utilize, you know, really efficient logistics uh, and, you know, storage, et cetera. Um, so um, we, you know, that's that's the route we started on and that's the one that makes the most sense to us financially and to our investors already that have backed us. What type of investors are you looking for? Is this a VC play or is this a debt or a PE play? Um, right now we're looking for equity investment in the company. Um, there's like kind of a split in terms of, um, how we're looking at doing projects. So the projects, um, the financing for that will be per project. And that's not investment in the company. And that's investment in the project with a return after 18 months. Um, equity investment in the company is to help us to scale um, our team uh, and uh, to uh, continue to improve um, uh, the connector technology, working with the prototyping partner um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, we have a um, a version 1.0 um, right now. Um, we know we can make improvements to that in terms of, you know, uh, how the panels um, connect together. Um, and we continue to, um, we plan to continually iterate on um, what we're doing. So we're always like, you know, if we're, well, if we're doing well, other people want to jump into the market, of course, and compete with us. I think our goal is to always um, try and stay one step ahead and i would say the other thing is to um, develop a real identity in new york meaning that people look at us and uh, at ip house and they're like you know this is a real product um that's scalable that has traction within the market that has a real identity behind um you know um behind the technology and the design and you know um you know uh, in the culture uh the culture of the company or what it is uh did that answer your question or does that make sense yeah that yeah that makes sense so Adam Newman comes to you in two or three months with 
200 million of all that money he pulled down to buy this and build his little dream house empire. What do you say? Um, depends on what the terms are. And, you know, <laughs> uh, I don't know, it's uh, across that bridge when it, uh, uh, if we come to it, you know, I, I think right now we're very excited about um, uh, working with real estate developers um, uh, and working with, you know, um, not for profits like Habitat um, and um, uh, really being able to engage with the city, I think through New Lab, we have a series of meetings with the VP from uh, Bank of America. They really love what we're doing. Uh, setting up a meeting with, we have a meeting with NYC EDC uh, soon. Uh, and uh, we really love that whole process of um, uh, really diving to the market, um, uh, really understanding the players within the market and setting up really robust networks for, you know, delivery or whatnot. Spoken like a true CEO. <laughs> Thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm transitioning from architect to CEO, and I don't know if you know if you all know anything about architects, but they're usually pretty bad at business. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, no. But th thankfully, the other two partners. One is uh, really well, um, uh, uh, really experienced in real estate development, um, uh, and the other partners, um, uh, a nano scientist who's um, really well versed in, like you know, uh, things like um, uh, like. Uh, solar power and uh, new materials and all that. Um, he's been really helping too with uh, uh, the financial organization side of things. He's really good at that as well. Awesome, Yao. Any any last questions? No, uh, super interesting, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this. Um, yeah, if you all know of like we're really trying to get an additional two hundred thousand in to match the New York Ventures pledge. Um, so I'd put it at a half a million. Um, which would be, you know, which would be half of our goal of a million. So if you know of any people that are, would be interested in what we're doing, um, we can give good terms for that um, in terms of the valuation. Uh, and um, yeah, great time to, to, to invest in what we're doing because it's a really good time to be doing what we're doing in New York, uh, just given the focus of the city on affordable housing uh, and the networks we've been able to build there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And if you haven't talked if you haven't talked to DirtSat yet, you should talk to Christine. They're doing uh, green roofs for uh, commercial real estate. And well, if you've got a green roof, it feels a lot cooler to live in an urban jungle than it does in a an industrial park with solar on top. So you get much higher uh, property values and rents. Could be interesting um, for you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy to talk with her. Uh, the main thing is the maintenance, right? Um, the but, main thing uh, is the maintenance, but they do they they have. Uh, yeah, it's basically a platform and marketplace to help people do that. But yeah, the, the cool. that is the maintenance. They they handle that as well. But That's I want to I want to say thank you for pitching, Andrew. Thank you to everybody for pitching. And now it's time to transition to the the last part of the show where we choose our favorite winner. So Yao, one or two companies. Which which one or two were your favorite? Let's see if we can come to some type of of consensus. Um, I guess I guess for the technology, uh, the solar. Uh, solar technology is is really revolutionizing and uh if if true then i mean uh, can you imagine duplicating efficiency across all deployed solar in the world um i think that's 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 super interesting uh also i i, I thought that uh, that uh, that um, the uh, lou lou uh lou what yeah so that was that's super impactful uh, i think it's a very interesting uh, idea as well uh, perhaps not so much from a from a venture capitalist point of view, 
but definitely an impactful and an interesting interesting idea. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think I would pretty much mirror mirror the same thing. And from a from a VC case, uh, Airbill Energy is the one that I see, or Arbil Energy is the one that I see is the 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 biggest upside. Of course, assuming that the tech checks out, which is mm-hmm. why we have lots of mentors and check with our tech experts before we make any bets with our with our accelerator. But that would be the one that I find is the most interesting from a VC bet. Uh, Lou Watt, I love what they're doing and how they're. I mean, I saw where was that? I heard this one time. Abundance isn't isn't about what you have it's about when you don't have what you need and more than anything else in the entire world having a toilet and toilet paper that's the one thing where if you don't have it everything else is ruined <laughs> so i will say yes i will give lou Watt a big uh, a big thumbs up there but uh, uh definite high five and thumbs up to everybody everybody who presented and pitched guys thanks for coming on i would say yeah, yeah I, Airbill Energy would be our, our climate startup of the night, and we'll give Lou Watt our impact startup of the night. We'll have a we'll have another award there. Sound good? Yeah, for sure. And I'll, I'll just uh, just add by saying that all ideas were 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 very interesting, and I think we had some really nice discussions. I mean, if we have to sort of uh, single out any companies, then that's sort of our take on it. Mm-hmm. Definitely agreed as well. You kind of have to pick the favorite kid in this game, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, all the all the kids are loved. Guys, thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks for pitching and sharing. Uh, where's the best page for people to find out a little bit more about you and EDP Ventures? Just uh, go to edpventures.vc and you'll find uh, you'll find us there, or just reach out to me directly at LinkedIn. I'm, I'm happy to speak at any time. Awesome. And likewise, guys, forward.vc, the number four ward.vc. We invest in pre-seed and seed climate startups that move the world forward. You can check out our climate uh, accelerator program there. We invest in one to two companies a month. And then we cheat with our network, our kind of sales connections, warm intros to help you land some customers, pilots, serious traction, uh, build an actual business, prove out the technology, and then ultimately raise your real round. Forward.vc for more details. And there you can also find our climate uh, VC uh, incubator accelerator CVC database. We've got 900 of the top climate investors there. You can find them all filter by stage sector, geography, and jack size. If you're watching on YouTube or LinkedIn or wherever you are, just hit the subscribe button so you don't miss this or share it with a friend. Or if you want to pitch, thestartuptank.com. And until next time, yeah, it's uh, it's Team Planet time. And I'm, I'm hungry here in Europe. I don't know about you guys. I'll talk to you later. Thank Cheers. You Thanks for tuning in to another segment of the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show presented by Forward VC. I'm your host, Matt Ward, serial founder, climate investor, and partner at Forward VC's Angel Syndicate, investing in companies that move the world forward. To learn more about me, download my free growth and fundraising guides, or to get help scaling your company, please visit mattward.io. If you're interested in pitching on a future segment of the Startup Tank, please visit thestartuptank.com. And if you're a credit investor interested in investing alongside us in top climate and impact companies that move the world forward, please visit forward.vc for more details and to apply.